Shift podcast. This week's episode is about psychology versus behavioral economics. Fight to the death. And I'm Katie and I have with me John. Hello. And we are interested in talking about this topic because these two domains happen to be our areas of expertise. I don't know, John, if you want to kind of introduce yourself and give a little bit of your background in psychology. Yeah, so psychology is what I studied as an undergraduate at Queen's in Belfast. It was a BSc because psychology is now a science rather than a Bachelor's of Arts. Um, and then after my undergraduate, I studied a postgrad master's in forensic psychology. So I have quite niche specialism in psychology while I was studying it. Post-studying, I worked as an assistant psychologist. So I did that after my forensic master's so tech, and then focused on clinical work and I was an assistant to a qualified clinical psychologist. So interesting and we could yeah. obviously talk and have talked for hours about some of the interesting domains that you found yourself exploring in those mm. areas but that's really interesting. So my background is in applied behavioral economics and my academic background is actually in the communications space as with a lot of quote-unquote behavioral economists. My background is in studying media and the messages that we put out. And I studied my undergraduate at USC and my master's degree at the London School of Economics, focusing on quantifying the messages that the media are putting out. Mm. So really going through and codifying the observed messages in media outlets and hypothesizing about their impact on individuals in that volume. Yeah. But with my master's degree in particular, the focus was really on what are the predictable inputs and outputs. You know, the yeah. London School of Economics looks at everything through the lens of economics and that really mm. got my appetite wetted for looking at what are some of the generalizable and extrapolatable yeah. impacts of the way that humans actually are and actually operate, which led me to a lot of self-study and engagement with the wider community as the field of behavioral economics kind of has been coming into its own. And obviously within the HW Shift team, as well as before the formation of this team, um, I've been working in applied behavioral economics over the last seven years or so. You said something interesting there, like, about how behavioral economics kind of came to fruition, mm -hmm. you said. To what extent do you think people know the difference between psychology and behavioral economics? Do you think people see them as the same thing or do you think people can innately identify the difference? So yeah, it's really interesting that you asked that because I don't think that people necessarily give it much thought. Why would they? But I think, and this is where it's really important that although we've set this up as a behavioral economics versus psychology yeah. type of podcast, actually at its core, there is so much more that is similar than different. So behavioral economics is the application of psychology yeah. to economics. And I think fundamentally, all of behavioral economics is psychology, but not all of psychology is behavioral economics. Yeah. Like all squares are rectangles. Yeah. But not all rectangles are squares. I think you're I think you're right. I in my mind, where I first when I first encountered behavioral economics to me, I felt like it came from, born from social psychology mm -hmm. because of the term that you've already said, the generalizability yeah. and looking for trends and looking for social phenomena and then understanding how that applies on a wider scale. Whereas the, a lot of psychology is based on the individual and mm -hmm. that's where the two really kind of differ. 
Yeah. In my mind. And Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, the kind of forefathers of behavioral economics, who quote unquote, who started talking about this domain in the 70s. But yeah. they were both psychologists yeah. in Israel. And it yeah. just came from a lot of them sitting down and talking about how essentially a lot of the economic assumptions about how humans en masse operate yeah. are based in a false understanding of what humans are like. Yeah. They talk about how a lot of economic theory is on the basis of humans as econs, so people yeah. who take rational inputs, consider all the available evidence, and act rationally, whereas a lot of the uh, easily observable phenomena from anyone's individual life mm -hmm. or group life is different. And so they talked about how specifically elements of the psychology that they understood well yeah. could help to explain ways that those models needed to be adjusted sure. to better reflect the way that humans actually operate. Yeah, okay, that's, that's really interesting. In my opinion, behavioral economics kind of has a bit more consistency within it as well in terms of you don't seem to have as many factions of approaches. Mm -hmm. Like with psychology, you obviously have your psycho, you know, it's born out of psychoanalysis, psychoanalytical and the Freudian stuff. You have evolutionary psychologists, you have psychologists interested in attachment theory, biopsychological mm -hmm. sort of epistemologies as well, and trying to understand, you know, everyone kind of comes at it from a different angle as well. Yeah. Whereas with, with behavioral economics, there's less diversion within yeah. it. Not everyone's coming with a philosophical underpinning, if you know what I mean, in terms of what's the right way to look at things. Yes, often. that's a really great point. To take a step back, should we maybe just make sure that we define what is psychology and then what is behavioral economics and then we can talk a little bit about the differences between the two? Yeah, so the most common definition I've heard for, for psychology is that it's it's the science of the behavior and of the mind as well, which sounds quite nebulous. Um, it's looking at conscious and unconscious processes, cognition, um, emotion, personality, understanding how all of that impacts behavior. So it's, its scope is quite immense. Mm -hmm. um, simply because of the word, the mind. The mind. Yeah, like that, <laughs> you know, you're, you're talking about so many things. Personality and cognition tend to be a very common one with features within psychology yeah. um, that I certainly studied. Yeah, it's just kind of understanding what makes the person or a person who they are and mm -hmm. why they behave a certain way in certain scenarios, why their personality is shaped the way that it is. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's very, for me, it's very interested in the why is this person going to respond this way in this scenario? what's brought them to the position that they are currently. Yeah. Basically, what's going on in their, in their minds. Behavioral economics is the application of psychology to economics. So this is again where you can see that not all rectangles are squares, but we've just said, okay, it's the application of psychology as a mm. broad domain, even though you've painted the picture of how imminently complex it can be, to economics. So it's more focused on adjusting input-output modeling to create a more reliable framework to predict how people are going to respond in a particular yeah. situation. So it's less focused on the why. Yeah. It's less focused on why did this individual, although we usually use some combination of behavioral economics created terminology or psychology yeah. um, terminology to describe that cognitive process. Mm -hmm. Less look, drilling into why did this individual respond in this way and what are you know the unconscious factors that led to that, for example. It's more, here's a tendency, yeah. here's the outcome of that tendency. And behavioral economics as a discipline 
has been a lot more focused on then how do we, what is the impact of that behavior? So again, what is the result? Yeah. And can we predict if this is the input, this is the output based on how people actually respond? But also how can we change that behavior? And particularly the recent um, Nobel Prize award to Richard Thaler and that whole discipline. And I think mm-hmm. part of the reason why it's gotten really popular in a marketing yeah. capacity is because it's focused on, okay, what are some of the ways that we can nudge behavior? What are some of the yeah. roots and strategies to make the behavior different? Yeah. Some of the differences we've already kind of talked about a little bit. So you said um, psychology focuses more on the individual. Yeah, I think it's trying to understand what influences the behavior from that individual level is kind of what clinical psychology is very entrenched in. So that was something that I was working within where um, I, in my opinion, there's a drive in psychology to not generalize too much, especially in clinical. And Mm. clinical is, if you try to study psychology, is the dominant career in psychology. Clinical psychology is very much trying to move away from that, that it is bespoke individualized treatment, um, CBT, um, IAPT, that sort of stuff. Like that's really trying to set up work around cognitive schemas, individual cognitive schemas and understanding people's pasts and what helps formulate those. So this for me is where we sometimes have interesting conversations where there's a contextual cue, there's a cognitive bias being displayed. Mm -hmm. And my mind often automatically goes to why would that person behave that way due to that cue? You know, what's inspired them to behave that way? Whereas I think with behavioral economics, that's not so much the point of specific interest. Yeah. It's more, how can we explain why that might happen? Yeah. And how could that happen more commonly? Which in what we do is more helpful. So Mm -hmm. to provide a drawback on psychology that the focus on the individual is more narrow. Mm. compared to behavioral economics and looking at it on a wider on a wider trend and trying to understand how you can make more widespread tailored interventions rather yeah. than one for that specific person yeah um so this is why we see when we do segmentations as an example that's where you're starting to take from psychology more so mm-hmm. where you're trying to understand personality in a kind of roundabout way you're looking at attitudes you know this is where in my mind when people differentiate between the two they might not know that they're doing it, but when you ask for segmentation, you want to know more about the personality or or the different personality types your sales force can interact with and how you can maybe nudge them. Yeah. And again, as a psychologist, it's saying, "Mm, so why does that person have that personality? What's formed? Whereas behavioral economics as a, well, first of all, I was about to say as a science, because I regard it as a science and the way that I approach it is about looking at the, collection of evidence that we are amassing within that broader discipline um, and applying it with a degree of rigor. But I think it's it's also worth pointing out that it's not necessarily, or it is only more recently moving towards being a science. So, yeah. well, so, so did psychology. Yeah. When I started studying it, there was a very clear, visible drive to be taken seriously. Yeah. Because a lot of people were applying for psychology not really knowing what it was mm-hmm. and hoping it was going to be an easy degree course. So I noticed at Queen's there was a drive to get it more on par with medicine. And I think psychologists wanted to be seen that way. So everything is, you know, it's grounded in scientific theory now. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a BSc and an MSc. Mm-hmm. So you might find that behavioral economics goes the same way because it is a fledgling yeah. um, discipline, essentially. Yeah. 
I mean, it does have, so it does have deeper roots than I think a lot of people give it credit for because it's only really burst onto the public scene with the publication of Thinking Fast and Slow again. After 2001, with the popularity of that book and with the awarding of their Nobel Prize, it started to kind of grow. And I think, again, um, Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler, when they published Nudge, really helped that because it really outlined the impact of potential marketing interventions in actually changing mm. behavior in a public policy context in particular. So, yeah, public policy, uh, marketing applications of this have really helped it to become more of a thing. Yeah. And Rory Sutherland of Ogilvy put out a piece where he said, actually, he suspects that the power of behavioral economics is a lot down to the name. So he says it's the Sapir-Whorf right. hypothesis that once you give something a name, it's easier for people to take it seriously and see it as a discipline. And because exactly I think... Exactly, because it's got the word economics in it. Yeah, exactly. Okay. A lot so of... It's not the, just behaviorism, which is something that we study in psychology. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's because it's got the word economics in it, people are more willing to think that it's got credible roots. But really, all that the role of economics in this is more just thinking about modeling behavior, yes, yeah. which again is something that psychology has done mm -hmm. forever. Yeah, well, we, we touched on the, the combi, the capability, opportunity, motivation, behavior change model when I was studying it. We studied on the health belief model as well. So again, yeah, the, the modeling element mm -hmm. is definitely something that they naturally strive to do yeah. in psychology as well. So it's a bit of a false dichotomy that these are even different in, at their core. And we've talked about this before, but I think to some degree, behavioral economics is pop psychology. So it's yeah. taking things that have deep roots and proper application and proper origins from psychology and almost, you know, just talking about them as, oh, here's a cool, interesting thing from yeah. psychology. Mm -hmm. um, here's a cool experiment we designed to get someone to demonstrate this behavior. Yeah. Well, they're the more relatable phenomenon that are covered in behavioral economics and social psychology. So they always make the more interesting books. People can relate to them. You know, it's called pop psychology for a reason. And it's kind of social psychology within psychology is kind of looked at differently compared to clinical because it is studying sort of not more flippant, but it's not based in mental health. Say it's just understanding, you know, so the Stanford experiment, Milgram all those famous really interesting studies um they are the ones that people want to hear about so they're more that that's why it receives more attention because yeah. it's as i was saying it's relatable like if you're going to talk about all the great work that's been done in depression and schizophrenia in clinical psychology it's not as relatable yeah for people you know whereas everyone can observe these phenomenon of conformity studies mm -hmm. say especially um, when you watch the news and when you engage in politics or anything like that and trying to understand widespread mass behavior, yeah, it's easier to engage with, I think. Whereas there are, you know, it's very difficult to engage with the literature on yeah. dopamine theory and depression, that sort of thing. And this might not be a fair question to ask you, John, with your background in forensic psychology and in particular with your background in risk assessments and uh, child psychology, but 
because you've kind of had this lens on it to mm. some degree for a while, but it just occurs to me, are, is psychology more concerned with quote-unquote problematic psychology where it's causing harm to the individual or to society or is that just it seems well, like a lot of I think I the think, applications are focused on mental health I think clinical is and I think it goes back to the point that I was making earlier where clinical is the primary occupational domain within psychology you know it's the one that all established universities offer the doctorate for so like I was saying I would equivocate it to medicine so in medicine, you're not just looking, you're not only looking at health problems. You promote healthy lifestyles, well, like yeah. clinical will promote healthy mental well-being, but inevitably your focus is on the problems yeah. because they are causing the biggest detriment. So um, yeah, I think the point that you made is, is really interesting. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I guess being self-critical, because I was thinking, oh, behavioral economics as a kind of discipline tends to focus more on oh here's a common thing that we as humans do and I was thinking oh it's more focused on some of the interesting slash positive applications of you know the way the human mind works mm. but actually in retrospect we don't often talk about the evolutionary origins of those biases or the potential rational benefits you know we talk about how cognitive energy is a finite resource and how yeah. you need to ha use shortcuts otherwise you just cannot exist because you just do not have time to deal with all of this information absorption and suppress mm -hmm. your emotions to you know be a, a rational creature yeah but we really focus on the problematic outcomes of these shortcuts of how yeah. there's negative impacts of stereotyping we don't talk about actually how or how to leverage them yes and, and that's it again, I think a lot of it comes back to the clinical side of psychology where it wants to be an intervention-based science. So a, psycho a clinical psychologist would see someone who's got a finite amount of cognitive resource and it's expiring very quickly for them. They're not able to make level of rational decisions that they would like to and think about, okay, so how could we use a cognitive behavioral intervention to better structure your decision-making? You know, that, that would then become a... A problem to be solved yeah if that makes sense mm -hmm. um, whereas yeah for me behavioral economics tends to stop more at we're observing that this is happening what is our end goal in terms of can we leverage this to position what we offer in a different way to you know acknowledge yeah. that this phenomenon is occurring and we need to be succinct in how we present something it's kind of I don't want to use the word manipulation because that word has bad connotations but it's kind of yeah how can you take advantage of the phenomenon that you're yeah. seeing in a lot of what we kind of recommend in our shift work is you know the process is this is happening this you know you need to be aware of it this is how you could change your strategy based yeah. on the fact that this occurs yeah. and they uh richard thaler describes it as uh, libertarian paternalism so essentially oh, yeah. trying to kind of steer those behavior but in with a with an ethically yeah oh yeah a pure heart behind yeah, it. Yeah, because we, we went to the Nudstock stuff and there was all the information on the bicycle thieves and stuff like that. And there's some amazing talks by people using behavioral economics um, for that pro-social yeah. thing. So I don't, I don't want to kind of... Yeah, and nudging uh, for good. And yeah, There's exactly. lots of causes. Yeah. And I think it has to be ethical at its core because it's so fixated on behavior change as well. But something you said earlier, I think may have distilled in my mind the differences between 
behavioral economics and psychology, you described a person who was under cognitive strain or ego depletion and was in a situ you know, in a situation who where a psychologist would look at that and go, okay, so why is this individual behaving in this way? What cognitive behavioral therapy intervention could we create so that this person makes better use of their resources? Psychology is focused on optimizing that individual to respond better to those stimuli. And certainly yeah. it's also about, it might be about changing the environment. Whereas behavioral economics would look at that individual and go, okay, what is it that's draining their resources? Can we remove that from them? Yeah. What is it that's priming them to respond in that way? Can we change the prime? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you're optimizing the individual, whereas behavioral economics is often more focused on optimizing the environment or the stimuli yeah better yes. work for individuals on mass rather than That's a good way to put it yeah because a clinical psychologist would go through the process of um a clinical formulation so it's it's almost a scientific approach to, to ruling out possible explanations for that so what i used to do was administer something called the WACE, which is the um cognitive assessments so that's essentially to boil it down to its derivative it's the iq test mm -hmm. so that's where it's looking for developmental disorders and that sort of thing so mm -hmm. cognitive functioning so you would kind of say okay you know is there a developmental disorder here why someone is displaying this behavior let's do that assessment let's rule it out okay let's find out about their background and you might have someone particularly interested in attachment theory like my old um, mentor was um, let's hear about their family upbringing let's mm -hmm. hear about their relationships um, potential childhood trauma how they regulate emotion that sort of thing so it's kind of taking it from all different angles and then okay what's the environment so what are their cognitive schemas how do they respond to the environment so yeah. when this cue comes up and yeah how could we work on an intervention that means that when they see this contextual cue they interpret it differently mm -hmm. essentially yeah so yeah. highly individualized yeah um Whereas I do think behavioral economics sometimes does work on probabilities a bit more. Big where time. it's, you know, if we change this contextual cue or we change the environment, we probably have X amount of potential for people to display this behavior. So you're kind of moving the odds in your favor. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not going to change something and everyone will behave differently. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. quite, you know, it's quite rudimentary, but... Absolutely. Yeah, and it is about changing the probabilities. And even some of the most successful behavior change interventions and experiments have usually only shown, you know, an 8% yeah. difference versus the control. But you're working with smaller probabilities. Yeah. The other difference between behavioral economics and um, psychology that we haven't really talked about so far is that behavioral economics is also a little bit in its application is a bit more fixated on labels. Yeah. So there's a lot of naming of particular biases and uh, oftentimes, you know, different um, practitioners will kind of use different labels, but they all ladder up to similar kind of tendencies, really focused on let's name the bias, let's name the heuristic, which is the mental shortcut. Um, and those can be a double-edged sword because yeah. they name, they put a label on the behavior that makes it a little bit more recognizable yep. for people. But they are also, you know, classifying something that sometimes is a bit more fluid or isn't entirely classifiable yeah which is a really interesting point um coming from the clinical and forensic background i actually would sit through training on the importance of not 
being pejorative and how you speak and not labeling people. So that was a really interesting experience for me when I started engaging with behavioral economics more was the tendency to kind of embrace labeling for the reasons that you just described. So that, now that I think of it, is a really interesting difference as well between psychology and behavioral economics where psychologists are very interested often, especially in forensic, of building validated measurement tools, which I haven't seen in behavioral economics no. for a cognitive bias. Yeah. So a validated tool, using factor analysis, collecting data so that you could score people on the bias. Yeah does not exist in my opinion. A validated tool that you can use, measure and then point to a score. Yeah. Because it is often around clinical decision making. So you need to back up your decisions. So I think people sometimes think with psychology as well that it's, I think people confuse it with old school psychiatry and it's the person on the couch and you'll have this one person come out and say, in my opinion, this person is demonstrating X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And it's just that one person's opinion, which isn't fundamentally isn't true. You know, there are skills and measurements to measure these either symptoms in mental health or in personality, personality traits. Yeah. And I think that's what psychologists really sort of use as something or an example of what makes it a strong science. Yeah. Because you've got a diagnostic tool. Completely. Um, and I would completely agree with that. And I think that's a limitation of behavioral economics, certainly, that there isn't a validated benchmark for what m makes this bias present or not present. It's more a linking of, here's an observed tendency, this appears to be consistent with that tendency Yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, and I think this is something that we have to be really cognizant of when, when we see research projects that are trying to replicate academic papers, yeah. especially ones from the psychology world, especially clinical psychology studying conditions like schizophrenia or depression or bipolar disorder or anything like that where those papers come from an academic world where the measurements within them are validated skills so we see it more and more now where if you want to measure a certain you know concept within a population so the extent that they find something stressful or they feel that something is a burden to them or anything people will have devised validated skills which then we need to buy Mm -hmm. because there there is a strive in psychology to say this has been this has representativeness yeah so it's got validity it's been tested on a wider population you know it's representative of you know the population that we're looking at so that's also something where psychology kind of would boast about itself mm -hmm. and say you know we are grounded in science we've got validated tools we've got validated skills you know academics have monetized that as well yeah so it's something um, that if you were to apply psychology to market research somehow and say, you know, what facet of that would I take for market research, it would be what the academics have done yeah. in terms of making these validated skills that then you can um, point towards and say, it, this is a genuinely observed phenomenon. You could use it in segmentations then where you're saying that, um, you know, based on your score on this validated scale, you're likely to fall into this category. Yeah. rather than sort of doing the attitudinal questions just based on prior qualitative research, say. And that segues nicely into our discussion of kind of what might be some of the applications, as in, you know, where would we think more about being, of using psychology versus the lens of psychology that be, is behavioral economics. And I guess the first thing to say about that is just a caveat that actually we find they work really well mm. together by their nature as we've 
discuss their incredibly complementary behavioral economics is really an offshoot from psychology but psychology is a very uh, multifaceted domain and we've found certainly in our work together within the shift unit that having those different lenses and having those discussions about where they're similar and where they're different in relation to particular observations or business problems yeah has been really powerful but like you say the power of psychology is these validated frameworks and the fact that it has deeper roots my question from an application perspective though is that to what extent are there almost specific scales for each individual potential not necessarily biases because they're not necessarily looking to measure biases but because ultimately a lot of our clients want to have a benchmark that is commercially relevant so they could say okay we've scored a six whereas our competitor scored a five Mm. and so if we're going to use more wide applications of some of these frameworks it's almost not one that we could pick a framework that will apply to yeah. say all communications testing yeah. it's rather that we would need to pick one of those Is validated that, scales yeah applies to one section of the cognitive bias um, i think it'd be a very difficult task to look at it by bias yeah and i think that the elevation of the observations from market research to a higher level is achieved with both psychology and behavioral economics but i think certainly the validated nature of that observation is more powerful if you use a a psychology scale the other thing that you talked about in terms of where psychology might be more applicable is around the deep understanding of the individual and you've already referenced the applications in terms of applications to um, segmentation but perhaps patient support as well yeah i think something that we work on a lot is with these different patient support programs it's kind of understanding often the question is what is going to be most valuable to patients you know what do they want to know and i think this is where clinical psychology could really come into things where it could be helpful because it's the structure of mental health services as well it kind of comes with the practical and theoretical knowledge as well where in terms of what sort of things would people want to be signposted towards is often one that you know not a lot of people really know about and from an outside point of view trying to understand mental health services is very difficult I've always found yeah. um, before I started studying clinical psychology so and how you could maybe tailor it to certain types of patients perhaps I think it was just something that came into my mind that where psychology is a bit more applicable because of the individualization rather than trying to use psychological theory on a wider scale like behavioral economics is. Yeah. The other area where from the work we've done together that I've seen the psychology lens be particularly powerful is in thinking about the language that's used and some of the work that you've done on a number of projects at looking at the significance of particular terms or yes exactly the way they're used in a communication or in a discourse the the discourse analysis side of it yeah i think that's a great point that's where i've had like the most fun recently is kind of like doing those exercises where that is where the power of the individual is interesting because I have been posed this question by clients a few times of it's not just what they're saying in terms of the the information that they're putting across might be that, oh, I am, say, if you take an example of prescribing two treatments, oh, I'm, I'm unbiased when I recommend treatments to my patients. and Always. Always, because who wants to say that they're biased towards one company or one drug or anything like that? So 
that's fine. The insight is this person is unbiased. That's what we've been told and everybody's telling us this. But when you see the actual discourse, when you pose a challenge of, okay, so could you as accurately as you can describe to me how you would position these treatments to your patient, you know, let's replicate a dialogue. And we did this recently. And when you actually see the dialogue written down, there are certain discursive techniques that people can subconsciously end up using, which position things in a certain way. So the example that we saw was that someone who was claiming to be very unbiased between two treatments, they were actually really minimizing some of the drawbacks of one treatment or some of the complexities of that treatment and using discursive techniques to move the conversation along quickly to boil the decision down to a 50-50 binary choice between two quite random side effects. Yeah. So it could have this physical side effect on you or it could have this physical side effect on you. Which of those two do you want? Because the efficacy is equivalent. So when you study the actual dialogue, you start to see the insight goes to a deeper level where it's not just what they're telling you, it's you know the language that that individual is using. Yeah. You can analyze that to see what their true intentions really are and their subconscious intentions. You know, no one is coming to this saying, I'm going to be unbiased but secretly push one treatment. Yeah. What what the rationale there was was um they just they do want to appear as good unbiased practitioners. Yeah. But in an attempt to do that, they were actually making the argument seem more basic and binary than what it was. Mm -hmm. And the dosing schedule for one treatment was way more complex. To yeah. give you the example, so they were really really caveating and minimizing in their language and putting disclaimers into their language. So it's stuff like that where the individual becomes interesting because with qualitative research, even in academic psychology, you know, you don't need to examine several hundred interviews. You know, you can examine a subset and look for trends and use like grounded theory analysis to look at dominant themes that come yeah. through in the language. So that is somewhere where we can apply it more. Um, and something that I've been kind of working on recently, um, using the qualitative psychological um, methods to interpret what's actually being said. Yeah. And but it comes with a caveat of subjectivity as well. When we did academic qualitative studies, we would have to do an author disclaimer as well, just to be very clear on your knowledge of the area and your background and how you're interpreting what's being said. So. Again, it's a pro for psychology and a drawback where the individual individuality element does apply to the person analyzing as well. Yeah. And how you interpret and why would you interpret things in a certain way. So it's just being very confident that what you're seeing, there is a trend emerging. Yeah. And being confident that it's being displayed in, in multiple people. And that, I think, is a drawback of behavioral economics and its relatively recent foundations in the extent to which we're describing and naming biases and phenomena is that a lot of times they originate from very small experimental studies. Who names them? Who gets to name them? Exactly. Who gets to interpret them? And also sometimes, and there is, I mean, there's a replication crisis in all of, um, in all of the social sciences and uh, obviously an experiment experimental pool or a respondent bias of the fact that it's often college students that are or university students mm. that are the subjects for these experiments but um within behavioral economics specifically there's often a because it's such an exploding library of named biases and tendencies that are on the surface you know very intuitive and people can recognize it in themselves they can recognize it in other people but it leads to a rush to adopt this 
oh, this is definitely a thing, yep. when sometimes it has only been demonstrated in one study. Like, great one is the worldview backfire effect was demonstrated in a study that um, they called a citation bomb because yeah. it was it just exploded. Everybody was like, oh my gosh, the worldview backfire effect. And then it turns out it was only that one study with this population of parents who were anti-vaccine, mm -hmm. who had okay. a backfire effect against pro-vaccine messages. Yeah. And they weren't able to demonstrate that in a, a number of subsequent studies. I mean, it's, it's a broader phenomena that is still motivated yeah. reasoning, which is the tendency to look for information that supports your existing view, yeah. which is a thing that is still continuing. Mm -hmm. And David McRaney has done a fantastic podcast on that. If anyone's interested, I can put the notes in the show notes. But um, yeah, there's this rush to say, okay, here's a thing. And now everyone's picking it up and running with it, which, and um, not to interrupt you, but um, that's another drawback of behavioral economics is that because it's not psychology that has a kind of protected term status yeah anybody kind of can call themselves a behavioral economist or say that yeah. they're applying behavioral economics and there's no consistency in the depth or breadth of knowledge that you're necessarily getting from those individuals or guarantee of the rigor of which they're or the breadth of their knowledge mm -hmm. and there's no caveat like you were saying psychology's uh, been very careful with yeah. this that now there are processes to be a chartered clinical psychologist, educational forensic, whatever it is, and you can search for them on the BPS website, so mm -hmm. the British Psychological Society. So yes, um, that is one advantage of it, that you can, at least there is a consistency in how people have been trained, say, yeah. or how they apply, or they are accredited to an extent. Again, a lot of it just comes back to the fact that it is in the world of medicine, essentially, mm -hmm. and it's health. Yeah. So um, that's if you are receiving an intervention from someone, you want to make sure it's from someone who's qualified, essentially, yeah. is the difference. But um, not all academic psychologists are chartered psychologists in their domain either. You know, a lot of people, they observe the phenomenon or conduct research. They're not all practicing doctors, essentially. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, if, if your interest is in clinical or forensic, you know, a lot of people do focus on research, you know, research psychology is still a very big part of it. Not, I don't mean to sort of dismiss it, you know, in comparison to vocational psychology and acting as a, as a practitioner. Yeah. And I think in every discipline, there's a degree to which an academic qualification or a different tier of qualification doesn't necessarily make you better at applying it no. or make it more appropriate for the situation um, in any case. And I think that's certainly true within behavioral economics as well, even though there aren't any established qualifications or tiers. Although mm -hmm. within the last five years or so, more universities have um, created behavioral economics courses and are at least training people with that discipline. So there's starting to be an academic foundation for what his behavioral economics and yeah. how do we apply it, um, which we're lucky enough to obviously have Ali who has that background mm -hmm. in that academic space. But yeah. There's an interesting point that you were making there around the sort of the over labeling or over generation of biases. Mm -hmm. um, 
Because that was something that was also observed in psychology with the, the DSM-5 and the Diagnostic Manual, mm-hmm. where there was a bit of a backlash around over-labeling in that and sort of reintroducing old um, old labels. Like there was discussion at one point of psychopathy possibly going back into the DSM-5, but it didn't make it in. And um, a lot of sort of... Um, lot of conditions that could be diagnosed from a young age as well and I think there was a bit of a pushback in the community it was just going to be released while I was still working with the clinical psychologist around too many diagnoses essentially and yeah. so and that, I think that really emphasizes the point of psychologists trying to strive and move away from this because that's they must perceive the same problem where you don't want to generate more labels yeah. more diagnoses which then could be treated with more treatments essentially yes um so i think it is about kind of trying to understand what's happening with an individual without necessarily having to put a diagnostic label on it yeah um which must be interesting behavioral economics where people try to discover a new bias well and to be honest there's less risk in behavioral economics because we're not treating people where it's a lot more um, kind of experimental, let's figure out how we can change behavior for the better, steer people towards this, understand some of the generalizing, general tendencies of humans, yeah. and less about, okay, I, this is a label for a person, it's more about we as humans tend to do this, so yeah. there's less risk in even creating a bias like World V Backfire Effect. The fact that it hasn't replicated, hasn't chain you know no one is being treated like they are suffering from world view backfire effect and therefore you know the fact that it doesn't seem to replicate is harmful it's more okay well that doesn't appear to be a thing it's more a risk in terms of as this field continues to have weight and impact in a market research and marketing and uh, social policy and behavior change context Mm -hmm. that it it starts to become overly complex where people can't necessarily grapple with it or they're getting different answers or different names from different people. Yeah. And some people have been doing great work like the the Wheel of Biases and the, um, the folks at uh, the UCL Center for Behavior Change have mm-hmm. a taxonomy where they're looking yeah. at, let's distill these terms mm-hmm. and group them together and stop using a load of different terms, which yeah. is great. Um, but ultimately, I think regardless of the terms that you use, and we often cite, you know, multiple biases in in relation to a particular observed phenomenon, because to some extent, because it's a market research context, it's mm-hmm. less about why that person is having that t- that behavior necessarily. A lot of times, it's more just this is an observable tendency, and here are the names of two biases that relate to this, and mm-hmm. here's some examples of times where you yourself have suffered from this bias or where it's had this other impact. So in that respect, I think because it is a bit more pop psychology, the it's more applicable on projects where we do really need to boil it down to something relatively simple to understand and communicate mm-hmm. um, for clients where, where it's less complex. Although I think you know, from my experience in our work together, yeah, I don't think you overcomplicate things, but psychology by its very nature is perhaps more complex in its application than behavioral economics. Um, And as we've already discussed, behavioral economics is maybe a bit more suitable and projects where you're looking at trying to group behaviors together or predict behaviors because it's more fixated 
on those elements of psychology and how it manifests in humans, as well as, yeah, changing behavior certainly has always been a part of psychology, but is really the kind of sexy element of behavioral mm. economics in the public space. It's the reason why it's getting so much attention in a marketing context and a social policy context, because it's the action it's the actionable point of behavioral economics. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting to understand why people are doing the things that they're doing, but ultimately what does that mean in terms of how we could go about changing that behavior? And so that's yeah. where I think behavioral economics is a bit more fixated on lots of experiments, lots of yeah. uh, literature gathering, lots of, yeah, just going out there and trying stuff, nudging in different directions yeah. and seeing what the results are and then as a cohort, we're all trying to kind of learn from each other's experience and yeah. boil that down to what interventions work well in what context. Yeah, which is, that's good that we sort of spoke about this because the more I think about it, the more I realize that people really were confused when I was at university as well. Yeah. Like the dropout rate in psychology apparently is one of the biggest mm. um, in first year dropouts and it's simply because people, it just doesn't match their expectations. And I think a lot of people go in expecting it to be around behavioral economics. And interesting stuff and about interesting the human mind. Yes, and interesting stuff around why people do what they do and how you can nudge that and that sort of thing. And then you sit down for lesson one and it's cognitive theory. So yeah, so I think this is what they do as well. You know, I think as an industry, they really want to differentiate themselves. And well. that's the difference as well between psychology and behavioral economics is that Psychology is from the bottom up. You start yeah. by understanding the workings of the brain. Yeah. Whereas every, well, I don't know how the academic courses are structured now, but it's almost the opposite in behavioral economics from the other practitioners that I've spoken to, is mm. that most people get into it from an interesting book or an interesting phenomena, and they, they start by learning about a couple of interesting phenomena, and then start to gain an understanding of the complexity and consistencies of the human mind, yeah. and work down into actually being able to make that a bit more of an actionable piece of intelligence and... yeah understanding, which is, again, a potential drawback of behavioral economics as an applied discipline, particularly in the market research space, because you've got people like me who've been studying it for years, and like Ali, who has you know, a robust academic background mm. in this space, but you also have people who literally have only read Thinking Fast and Slow yeah. one time, yeah. <laughs> and are going, oh, system one, system two, almost like philosophically let's talk about the impact of this now it's not to disparage that too much because actually again that's some of the origins of this approach mm -hmm. but there's just such a mix of applications that it almost dilutes its power if you think that it's one thing you yeah. think that this whole domain of behavioral economists or applied behavioral economics is something that you know what that is yeah and then you find that lots of people have different levels of understanding or different mm -hmm. thoughts on what the applications are, which makes it very unpredictable for clients who want to think about commissioning a, a research Someone approach that has, has behavioral economics yeah. expertise. Yeah. Yeah. Which is where I think it's also useful then to collaborate as a multidisciplinary team yeah, because we ha so. see it from both angles and we have different levels of understanding and rigor with the different disciplines and when you bring them together. Yeah, I, I think it certainly encourages us to kind of push the insights further rather than just labeling biases. Yeah. We do have conversations around why would this occur yeah. in this space? You know, yeah. why would somebody possibly be reacting in this way? You know, what are, we've spoken a bit about like um, the intolerance of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. 
which is something that comes from psychology, which comes from generalized anxiety disorder. And, and likewise, with some of the discourse analysis that you've conducted when we've worked together, you'll say, oh, this is really interesting because they've chosen this term and this, this kind of way of phrasing it and this momentum. Yeah. And we're able to, Ali and I are kind of able to say, well, that's interesting in behavioral economics because we call that choice architecture. And here are some nudges that could help to restructure the choice architecture. Yeah, They're so complementary in the way that they apply. So... I guess that's the resolution then. That's um, <laughs> behavioral economics versus psychology fight to the death. Uh, they both live and win. Yeah. All right. Well, join us for the next podcast. And thank you so much for listening. Bye.